You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. The Prime Minister of Sweden visited Washington today and my tiny little nipples went to France. And Bruce Nolan. Yo, brethren, what up with thee? Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Nick Badalana, along with me as always. Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Nick Bat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. Bruce, where can the people find you? At Bruce Exclusive. And we're back again. They gave us a trial run. They gave us one episode. They said, you guys can put your episode on Brumful of Rumblings one time, but if you screw it up, no more. We were going to be... Whatever happened to that Nick and Nolan show? Yeah, I, mean, I, I got the one episode, and then we just never heard from them again. Yeah, well, luckily... We didn't screw the pooch too bad. And so here we are, back with you again. So thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time, everybody. We love talking bills, and we we love all the feedback that we have heard from everybody. We have heard feedback on Buffalo Rumblings webpage, where you're going to get the article that is the summary of the podcast. Uh, so make sure you can comment on there. We will see your comments there. We have gotten feedback on Twitter. We've gotten feedback on Reddit under the uh, R Buffalo Bills subreddit. So if you wherever is convenient for you wherever you're already hanging out hit us up there we'd love to chat with you and, and hear what you think of the episodes and what we're doing uh, what we're going to do today to get started is talk about the news at hand which is essentially minicamp so minicamp has happened OTAs are over that was before we even joined Buffalo Rumblings now minicamp has just wrapped up and we have the opportunity to talk about the stories that come out of there before we do that I would be interested, Bruce, if you can help us wrap our minds around a little bit the role that minicamp plays in the overall off-season happenings. So you've got the draft. I think we all understand that. Then you've got OTAs. Then you've got minicamp. And then you've got training camp. Can you give us a quick synopsis over the roles in which all of those plays in order? First off, minicamp is mandatory. And when I say mandatory, <clears throat> nothing's mandatory, right? They're not going to come to your house and, you know, drag you out by your, your hair and make you come to, to mandatory minicamp. But it's contractually obligated, right? They can fine you for missing it. So with OTAs, they can't fine you for missing it. With mandatory minicamp, if you are under contract, they can fine you for missing it. So this is relevant <clears throat> because there are players who aren't under contract. Like, for example, Jadavian Clowney. He has not signed his franchise tender in Houston. Because he hasn't signed it, he's not under contract. And because he's not under contract, 
he can skip out on mandatory minicamps. You can't find him because he didn't sign anything that required that he would be there. So for anyone who's under contract, that's important. You got to make sure that you show up or you get fined. So that's the first thing. The second thing, it's called minicamp for a reason. The rules are different from a collective bargaining agreement standpoint for OTAs than they are for minicamp. For minicamp, rules are you can have physicals, you can practice Tuesday through Thursday with a day off on Friday, you're allowed two practices totaling three and a half hours on the field per day, and the second practice is limited through walkthrough. Like you get, There's no two-a-days in a minicamp versus the phase three OTA workouts, which we just got done with. Those are 10 total practices and there's no pads, there's no live contact, seven on seven, nine on seven, 11 on 11. So it, they're similar, but the the rules are a little bit different for minicamp than they are for OTAs as far as what you're allowed to do kind of totally. From the team's perspective, what are they trying to accomplish in OTAs versus minicamp, minicamp versus OTAs, minicamp versus training camp? OTAs is, is primarily an installation thing. We talked about this before, I think before we were on Buffalo Rumblings, is that when, when Odell Beckham missed the Cleveland Browns OTAs, Freddie Kitchens, the head coach in Cleveland, was asked what he missed, and he said, the offense. The offense. Right? Because a lot of the installation happens during those times, which is why even when they say they're voluntary, they're not really voluntary. Right? They're, you're significantly pressured to go. Minicamp is like your accumulation of your spring before you break for the summer. So it's a little bit like, okay, let's make sure during this minicamp we know where everybody's at so that we can give them kind of homework. Okay, here are the things I want you to do over the next couple of weeks before training camp. You know, we're not going to start until the end of July. So it's, it's let's, let's get everybody on the same page. Let's level. Let's just make sure we know where we're at before training camp starts. Because when training camp hits, we want to hit the ground running. Where everyone's skill level is, where our okay. weaknesses are, let's go. That's that's what I was curious about when you say where know where everybody is. Are you talking about okay, so this guy needs to bulk up, or this guy needs to clean up his route running for as much as he can in the next six weeks? This guy, it, it's this it's, guy doesn't know the playbook. Okay, yeah, okay, okay, it's that kind of stuff. It also you you kind of can do a lot of your fiddling during OTAs, like with the offensive line stuff. You can do a lot of fiddling, but. Because it's not physical, you can't really learn a lot. But you can kind of rule a lot of people out during those spots. You know, if you put somebody at right tackle and his footwork is just atrocious, you might say, okay, you know what? We tried that. We we, we had a good run there. Let's let's not do that. When the training it. camp comes, let's not do that. Appreciate you giving it the old college try there. Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and just strong hard pass on you, Mr. Nolan, here at right tackle. And so it's just kind of accumulation of your spring. It's a little bit like how preseason is kind of the accumulation of your summer and the stuff that you did in training camp and stuff like that. Minicamp kind of becomes the accumulation of your spring. Yeah, I guess the thing that I was I was so curious about and wanted to know more about minicamp was after OTAs, I kind of got this sense, just being a fan who's online and reading stuff and all that, I got the sense that there was some takeaways. There were guys who were playing in certain positions, John Feliciano at center. That was interesting. Yeah. There was... The initial look at Josh Allen, he's not throwing up all over himself. This is good. This is good. I, I will take this. And 
after mini camp, it was a lot more, I don't know, like filler news, it seemed to me. It was a little anticlimactic. Yeah. And I think the reason is because they took that third day off and it kind of threw the media cycle off a little bit. Because everyone was like, all right, now, I have to, you know, let's let's get ready because after this third day, we're going to want to drop our takeaways from minicamp stories, right? And then they go and they decide to turn it into Chuck E. Cheese on the third day. And, you know, that's... Is that actually where they went? Do we know where they went for the team building No, they activity? stayed in the field house and they had like inflatables and stuff. Oh, I wasn't good. like joking about the Chuck E. Cheese thing. I mean, they basically had a field day. Yeah, good. Remember field day? Were you a field day person when you were a kid? Yeah, but we didn't have inflatables. We had like those weird strollers that were like the moving pallets that had like four wheels on them where you sat on them with your hands on the side. Oh, you pitched your fingers like a thousand times. And then you would just like go as fast as you can by kicking your feet along the ground and race people there and back. And when you wipe out, it's on the tennis court, which is freaking blacktop. So it's like you were in a little motorcycle accident. (laughs) Just 100 straight lawsuit waiting to be filed. Yeah, really. Those things were just screaming lawsuits and we just had no idea when we were kids. You and I aren't even that old, but like there are things that we... We did as kids that you definitely wouldn't get away with today. And there are things that our parents did and like our older siblings did as kids that we definitely wouldn't be getting away with today. I loved field day. I was a huge field day guy because I, I, you know, I ran track. I played football. I was, I was, I, I loved doing athletic stuff when I was a kid and field day was like my day to just like get all the medals, like all of them. <laughs> like, I don't care if it's a freaking egg competition, like carrying it on a spoon. I'm going to kick your it's gonna oh, be- yeah. One thing I think about sometimes, this is another tangent off of what we just talked about, but like way back in the day, like there's things that we wouldn't get away with or that schools wouldn't get away with or people wouldn't get away with whenever we were younger. You think about like, I think you and I have had this conversation off to the side. You think about like some of the old players, like think about the Bills specifically, like the 90s Bills in the social media age. Some of the stuff that you hear about with the with the parties and the bar happenings and all that, um, it's an interesting prospect to imagine if all of the beloved players that we have that we cherish from our history would have this would have a similar legacy if the cell phone cameras had been around whenever uh, you know they were they were living their life. Oh yeah, I'm trying to imagine you know the bickering bills. Yeah, in the age of social media. Oh yeah, subtweeting. A lot of famous players. I mean, people talking. I've heard people made the comment about Brett Favre. Like, if if people hadn't been able to shoot video of him in the Milwaukee bars and stuff like that, whenever he was in Green Bay and younger. So, I, I don't think it's unique to the Bills, but it is interesting because there's a lot of people who we look back on with just I think rose colored glasses. And then nowadays, you know, there's players who I think are similarly talented and were doing good things for their teams, but because of social media or whatever, you know, word gets out about behavior and. It sinks people's battleship. Not that it shouldn't. It's just a, I don't know. I guess it's just an interesting conversation to me. And I, I never really know how to how to do anything with that thought. But uh, it's something that I, I often I often think about whenever, you know, because the Bills fans, we live so much in the 90s memories. I don't know. Are you saying, Nick, that nostalgia Clouds our judgment? No. <laughs> Couldn't, no. Couldn't possibly be true. No. Right? I don't believe it for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, here's one of the other things I wanted to ask you about. So, we, we've talked about, like, the role that minicamp plays. Whenever min- training camp comes around, what are the things that are going to be very, very different from day one compared to maybe what was happening in minicamp? Well, the first thing is during training camp, you have pad practices, right? Not always, right? But you have shells practices, and then you have full pads practices, and full pad goal line 
is the biggest departure from minicamp and OTA you could possibly imagine. What's what shell practices? So you're wearing helmets and shoulder pads, but that's it. Wearing helmets and shoulder pads, right? It 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 it, it changes how you move your arms. I don't know if you've ever had to had to try and throw or catch a ball outside of shoulder pads and then do it with shoulder pads. It's it's different. So having shells also kind of gives players a little bit more. Um, I think the term that they use nicely for it is thudding, right? You get a little thudding, you know, a little, uh, you know, just, I don't tackle. We don't tackle to the ground is what they say. We don't tackle to the ground, but we, you know, we thud and wrap up is what they say. Well, you can do that if you're wearing shoulder pads, but you're probably not going to do that if you're not wearing shoulder pads. And that's the thing that you shell practice to give you. The hopes is that because your installation is in, now you're working on different stuff. Now you're not trying to teach people plays. You're now trying to teach them how to run the plays better. So instead of going, okay, let's just figure out what route you're running, okay? Now it's, okay, you know what route you're running. Here's how to run your route better. And it's just a deeper level of stuff. Okay, cool. Were there any big storylines that came out of minicamp that caught your eye? I think the thing that's interesting to me is Trent Murphy's been getting a lot of a lot of pub over the last week or so as hey, you know, he looks really good. You know, he's you know, two years removed from the ACL and last year he fought through all these injuries and you know, he could be the answer opposite Jerry Hughes. Okay, so Getting a lot of pub, I always wonder, like, with the fact that we didn't make any improvements on the defensive line at the defensive end position, aside from Eli Harold, really, and Daryl Johnson, those are the two additions to the to the pass rushing front of the defensive ends. I wonder if people are saying that Trent Murphy's looking better because it's seeing a little bit of what you want to see. Absolutely. It's media filling a vacuum. Because it, you, you have to hope that he is going to, you know, either he's going to turn into something or Mike Love is going to turn into something or Eddie Yarbrough is going to be something he never has been. Like, you got to hope that something is going to happen. Otherwise, you're going to have, you know, similarly underwhelming pass rush results from the end opposite Jerry Hughes. This is great when you when you lose a really good player in free agency. Just get ready for the next man up story. From the guy who used to be his backup, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's media filling a vacuum. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's what people want to consume. And if you as a consumer want to consume it, the media will give it to you, period. So it, it makes sense that there are a bunch of puff pieces for Trent Murphy. I anticipate there will also be puff pieces associated with Shaq Lawson being in a contract year and the chip on his shoulder and how it's going to be his best year ever and how the growth that he showed last year there, there that will exist as well and there will be pieces about Matt Barkley and how he's ready to take over the reign from Derek Anderson as being the mentor for Josh Allen that that will show up there's just this is going to happen just get ready for it right because this is the media filling a vacuum and the Trent Murphy thing is the media filling a vacuum too now the difference with the Trent Murphy story is a lot of people truly believe we could get 2016 Trent Murphy. Now, what I'm here to tell people is that if you're looking for Trent Murphy to be a double-digit sack guy, you're looking in the wrong place. Trent Murphy is never going to be a consistent double-digit sack guy. He's never going to be a 12-13, a, a, a star passer. He'll never be equitable to Jerry Hughes because he doesn't have the traits to do it. Trent Murphy at his best. Watch the Redskins tape. 
Trent Murphy at his best is a guy who uses really good length to disengage his hands from blockers, right? And he has deceptively good quick feet. He had a really, really good three-cone time. People think that Trent Murphy's like a try-hard white guy. They look at Trent Murphy and they're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's like a Chris Kelsey or something like that. It's not true. He has good athletic gifts, but he's not a bendy pass rusher. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to be low to the ground in a motorcycle turn. That's not what Trent Murphy is. Trent Murphy is a long disengagement pass rusher who plays well with his hands and is able to kind of disengage and get his shoulder around. And that's what he was as a pass rusher in Washington. If we got that again, that'd be amazing. That'd be wonderful. I don't know if we're going to get it again, but it would be great if we did. And that would be amazing. He still wouldn't be someone who you can say, yeah, that spot's great. We don't need to go into 2020 and look at pass rusher. I don't see a scenario where we go into 2020 and go, you know what? We thought pass rusher were going to be a need, but you know, it's a funny story. It's not. You know, because Trent Murphy did this and then Eli Harrell really stepped in. I really don't think we need a pass rusher anymore. I would be floored if we got to the spot where all of a sudden we go into 2020 offseason and go, man, just this embarrassment of riches at the pass rusher spot for the Bills just came out of nowhere. Eli Harold finally broke through. Trent Murphy showed his 2016 form. We're in really good shape. I just don't see that happening. Okay, so it sounds like Jerry Hughes and Trent Murphy are very different kinds of pass rushers. Oh, yeah. Okay, can you tell me what sets each of them up for success? Because I'm assuming that being that they're different kinds of pass rushers, that means that Jerry Hughes is going to try to do different things to you when you're a tackle trying to block him. And Trent Murphy is going to try to do different things to you when you're a tackle trying to block him. And as a, as a result, the offensive coordinator and the offensive line coach and all that are probably going to say, and even the, the players themselves who watch tape on their opponents, are going to try to do different things to these players. Yeah, the, thing, the reason that Jerry Hughes is a better pass rusher than Trent Murphy because Jerry Hughes does more things. The more ways you can win as a pass rusher, the better you will be. One of the things that's always really interesting when I take a look at college pass rushers is I'm trying to check the boxes on how many different ways can he win. Aaron Maben is a great example of someone who can only win one way. Aaron Maben had a really explosive first step and he could bend the edge. Okay, cool. That's it. That don't impress me much. So if that's all you can do, if all you can do is bend the edge, then you're going to have a problem because offensive line coaches are going to be able to tell their person, this is, listen, this, this is all they can do, right? You're going to get a, a sneaky head start as an offensive lineman. You're going to be able to kick way back out of your stance and not have to worry about an up and under or a spin move or anything like that counter move, right? Jerry Hughes can win multiple different ways. He is, at his foundational core, a speed rusher. He always has been. But he has a good set of counter moves, right? He can go like he's going to speed and then just stop, right? Plant his, in his case, it would be his right foot, right? Plant his right foot and just duck up and under you because you overstrode to try and get back to the spot to cut him off. And then he's up. All of a sudden, he's up and under your right armpit now as a, as a defensive tackle. Or he looks like he's going to go speed rush and all of a sudden he gets his hands up in your chest and starts pushing you back. You're like, whoa, 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 I'm a little off, I'm a little off kilter because I had to stride so far back because I thought you were going to take the edge on me. That's, you hear this phrase, convert speed to power. That's what converting speed to power is. Mm. Okay, so 
I had I had a speed rush, but then I was able to convert it seamlessly into a power rush and make the tackle very uncomfortable. Trent Murphy can only do a couple things, right? Trent Murphy is not going to bend the edge on you. He's not a bendy athlete. That's just not who he is. Trent Murphy is going to engage with you with his hands, right? And try and beat you with his hands. He's going to shrug you off. He's going to push you aside. He's going to swim. He's going to... He's going to do something to try and disengage with the blocker. Ideally, you'd like to have the option to never get engaged at all. To have the the tackle never even get his hands on you. Trent Murphy's not going to have scenarios like that pop up very often. Where you're like, man, he was just behind. He was he was around me in a blink. I didn't even see him. <laughs> right? There was this six foot six, two hundred and sixty five pound man, and I just I, he's just gone. I don't know what happened to him. No, that's not going to happen. Trent Murphy's going to come right at you. Right. And he's going to try and disengage from you. He's going to use his hands to shrug you off and push you aside and get his hands up in you and just kind of get away. If you watch the tape from Washington, that's how he did what he was supposed to do. A couple of them, he was unblocked. But, you know, when he gets blocked, he's going to try and disengage. And because of that, he can only do a couple things. You're not going to have someone like him ever be an elite level pass rusher because the ways in which he is capable of winning are fewer because he lacks the athletic traits necessary to do it. One of the reasons I really liked Brian Burns coming out is because Brian Burns is an extremely athletic acceleration pass rusher, but that's not all he is. Brian Burns can beat you off the edge. And then when you think you're going to get him, you're like, okay, now this guy's really fast. I'm, I'm totally going to get him this time. And you get out of your stance fast and you stride really long and you're there. And then all of a sudden he spins up and under you and you're like, well, man, that didn't work either. Right? You have to have a plan. And Trent Murphy's not athletic enough to be like really hitting a, a dime spin move. This is not Dwight Freeney out here doing this kind of thing. I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm saying he can't do it at a high level consistently. And so Trent Murphy is a perfectly reasonable defensive end if he res- if he hits his 2016 form. But this idea that there's somehow like untapped potential with Trent Murphy, like he's going to become a 14-sack guy, I don't see it. Okay. Well, so a couple of things here. You're you're saying that that Trent Murphy's skill set is that even at his best, he's not flash. flash. No. He's not going to speed around you. No. Okay. It sounds like what Trent Murphy has to do is engage you with his upper body and then disengage you with his upper body. Sure. He's going to he's going to get a hold of you and he's going to try to move you to his right or left or try to push you in one direction and then go over top of you or something like that. Sure. When you hear somebody talk about being a technician as a pass rusher or a finesse pass rusher, that's a that's a term you hear use a lot in draft communities. Well, that's what you mean. When you say a finesse pass rusher, it means someone who wins with their hands. Now, I'm not saying winning with your hands is bad. I'm saying if that's the only thing you can do, it limits your upside. It's better to win to be able to win with your hands and win with your feet. Absolutely. And Jerry Hughes, you know, I I don't know. I didn't hear you say this. I I see Jerry Hughes spin a lot. Jerry like Hughes is a monster. He turns his back to the the linemen in an attempt to like get around them uh, a lot. Yeah, and he can do that because the reason he ha- he can do that is because he first has the threat of the speed. It's a little bit like a wide receiver thing. The wide receivers who are best at comeback routes are the ones who are best at vertical routes. Why? Because you have to play off coverage on them because you have to respect the speed, right? And because you have to respect the speed, now that opens things up for you to stop. For you to stop and do 
double moves or do comeback routes or things. It opens up things for you. It's the same thing for you as a pass rusher. If I have to respect your speed to the outside, now that opens you up to up and unders and spin moves and things like that. Dwight Freeney had two moves, speed rush, spin move, and you knew they were coming and you just, they looked so similar. If the first four steps, you don't know. And so, you know, don't get me wrong. Dwight Freeney could absolutely bull rush you. That's, that's a thing. But he was famous for the spin move, and the reason he was famous for the spin move is because it was a counter move to the speed. If we had to say what Shaq Lawson, at his absolute best for us this season, he's going to look a lot more tantamount to Trent Murphy than he would be Jerry Hughes, correct? A poor man's Trent Murphy, yeah. A poor, okay, okay. Trent Murphy, the only reason why Shaq Lawson outplayed Trent Murphy last year is because Trent Murphy was hurt all the time. That's why. I truly believe, I mean, Shaq Lawson's never had nine sacks in a season. So Trent Murphy at his ceiling is better than anything we've seen thus far from Shaq Lawson. But Shaq Lawson, to be fair, Shaq Lawson was playing left end. And this year he's playing right end. He may be more comfortable with that. He may be able to do better things from a pass rush standpoint at right end than he did at left end. And the reason why they're, they have him over there is because they feel comfortable with, with Murphy on the left side. But I really feel like Shaq Lawson at his absolute peak is poor man's Trent Murphy. So why was, what was the book on Lawson coming out that people were so optimistic? Shaq Lawson was really compact and had good power as, as a pass rusher. I thought that Shaq Lawson was someone who could win with his hands and win with power and give you enough there. I don't ever think I thought Shaq Lawson was going to be like a 15 sack guy like oh my gosh he's gonna be right there in the top of the NFL for sacks right but I did think he could win more ways than one because he didn't have the speed rush element that I really wanted but he did have the power think about someone like like Jared Allen right Jared Allen didn't have the crazy speed Jared Allen won with technique he won with his hands but he also won with power Jared Allen could just mess you up so, so give me, so give me your realistic expectations. What would you be really? I mean, this is the top of your expectations. Best case scenario, based on what you would be familiar with, what do you think we would get out of Shaq Lawson and Trent Murphy? If I got seven sacks out of Trent, Mur- Trent Murphy and four out of Shaq Lawson, I'd consider that okay. If you got, if either of them got more than that, you would be, you would be pretty surprised. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break here. We'll be right back and talk about some other players and stories that have come out of minicamp. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Nick Bat here with Bruce Nolan for the Nick and Nolan Show. You can find me on Twitter at Nick Bat and I C K B A T. You can find me at Bruce Exclusive. And we are going to continue our mini camp and recent story conversation here. So we've talked about Trent Murphy and Shaq Lawson, the defensive end position, all that stuff. One other person who I have heard a bit of rumblings or news about coming out of minicamp is Saran Neal. So Saran Neal is our fifth round pick from last year, right? He is safety. Didn't see the field a whole lot. I think some special teams play. Didn't play even whenever guys got hurt. Instead, we we pulled out Dean Marlowe, our favorite unsigned roster player. Boy, Dean Marlowe was right there. <laughs> but now Saran Neal is getting a decent amount of run, and it seems like in that big nickel position that is a Sean McDermott trademark. Two things. One, can you tell us what the big nickel is supposed to do on the defense that the traditional nickel or linebacker or safety isn't necessarily tasked with? And two, what are we hearing about Saran Neal and, and what do we think of that? Traditionally in the NFL, slot receivers were smaller, quicker guys who were able to gain separation faster and earlier in the, the down than other people because of their size and because they were lower to the ground. Their hips got really low out of the cuts. They were able to get separation early. But that hasn't been the case in the last couple of years. You find slot receivers that are big. And they go, well, you know, the NFL is is always I do this and they do this as a counter move. So first the NFL stocked their teams with smaller, quicker slot receivers. And so NFL defenses stocked their nickel cornerback room with smaller, quicker corners. Well, then the NFL offense says, aha, I see your smaller, quicker corners and I raise you Mike Evans in the slot or J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. Or some ridiculously tall uh, Marcus Colston from the Saints. We're going to take a six foot four guy and put him in the slot. Now, what do you think? And the NFL defense said, "Ha ha! I see your big slot, and I raise you a big nickel." Taron Johnson is an amazing nickel corner, and we should be happy to have him as a slot guy. I don't want him covering a six foot four guy. Do you? No, no, no. I don't. I don't want you to do that. In addition, it gives the offense really weird advantages on rundowns. So if you take someone like Gronk, who's not in the league anymore, thankfully, and you put him in the slot, and now Taron Johnson trots out there to cover him, not only do you have an advantage in the passing game because of the size, if you decide to run the ball, Gronk's going to steamroll him. And so you'll put him in the slot, Taron Johnson will come out, then you'll motion him inside as an inline blocker, and we're like, oh, well... Now we don't like our matchups anymore. We don't like the way that our personnel lines up with their personnel. So we have to adjust for this. And typically that ends up being a third safety. And that third safety, other you know, sometimes you know, big nickel or whatever you want to call it, right? Is a, a sometimes a linebacker safety hybrid, but a bigger defensive back who can A, match up with tight ends and big receivers in the slot, and B, not put you in a liability on running downs. So, Taron Johnson ain't that dude. I love Taron Johnson. He's also a monster against the run. But if you get squared up with him on a big slot receiver, he's going to get plowed. It's not his fault. He's just not built for it. So, the NFL responded 
with this. It's just a back and forth kind of game. And this is how NFL defenses responded to NFL offenses. So that's the first part of the question. Second part of the question, Saran Neal was really versatile at Jacksonville State. He played slot corner. He played safety. He played linebacker. He played boundary corner. Saran Neal was really well thought of coming out as someone who did a lot of did a lot of things. Couldn't have been that well thought of because he was a fifth round pick. But they said, oh, you know, we can we can make it work with Saran Neal. Let's kind of do a little everything. Well, that doesn't necessarily lend itself well to you seeing a lot of playing time early in your career. Because the NFL is a different game from a lot of colleges, but Jacksonville State's a fairly significant step down in competition from that. And I think maybe Sean McDermott and company looked at what Saran Neal did over the course of his body of work as a rookie year and go, okay, I think I know what we can do with him. I think potentially he could be a big nickel. And so they said, well, let's see what he does well, right? Well, let's see, does, does he rush well, right? And there's a stat making its way around the, the interwebs recently where he only blitzed three times last year and he got two sacks as far as over, including preseason, right? Which that's not even close to being significant sample size. But, you know, they probably saw it and said, okay, well, that's something he can do from the slot. He's a bigger body. He's roughly the same size as Raphael Bush, who was the previous big nickel, someone who came down and played in the slot a lot after Taron Johnson got hurt one of seven times last year. You know, the subluxing of his shoulder. It's it's something where you need somebody else aside from Taron Johnson. What if you can upgrade Raphael Bush? It doesn't have anything to do. Um, Joe Moreno from Locked On asked me this when I was a guest on his Water Cooler Wednesday. If you haven't heard that yet, please go listen to that episode and you're going to have to forgive the fact that I sound like Barry White on that episode. Yeah, you guys. Because the Wi-Fi was a little slow on my end and so I sound like I'm in the witness protection program. But in that episode, he asked me, what can we learn about Taron Johnson from looking at Saran Neal? And the answer I gave him was, I'm not sure anything because they don't really play the same position. It's not really, I mean, yes, they're both covering someone and yes, they're both in the slot, but the matchups are so different. You're never going to look at a player and go, oh, well, I guess because we can't get Teron Johnson, let's go ahead and put in Teron Neal. That's not, that's, they're not even playing the same position. It's completely different personnel groupings. If you go four wide as an offense, Teron Johnson is going to be on the field. If you go three tight end, he probably won't be. Okay. Well, can you talk about what the different skill set would be between potentially what we think, and this is a guess, but what we think the Bills are thinking about with Saran Neal and how to utilize him, and what you think the skill set that Jaquan Johnson brings, which is our sixth round uh, safety prospect, who is somebody that you actually think quite highly of. I love Jaquan Johnson, and I love him because he's a football player. I know that's just a horribly overused term, but... This actually ties into something we were talking about last week on the special teams. Some of these people are people who don't necessarily have the requisite skill sets to be able to do their starting job, their core job, well enough to be a starter, but also happen to have some potentially inverse traits that could lend them well to special teams. Jaquan Johnson is one of those people. Jaquan Johnson is a football player. Right. Jaquan Johnson can do a lot of things that I think lend themselves to special teams. Saran Neal is the opposite of Jaquan Johnson. Saran Neal has, 
actually had pretty good height, weight, speed. Like, he's a fairly decent athlete. And Jaquan Johnson is not. Jaquan Johnson is short, he is slow, and he is not long. He, God did not bless Jaquan Johnson. God, why do you hate me? And the asterisk to these comments that we always make is that this is in comparison to the elite athletes which make up the NFL. This is, this is relative is, to other athletes this at his is, size. Yeah, this is oh, sorry, not, at his position. Yeah, this is not in comparison to Bruce Nolan or Nick Pat. This is in comparison to the standard bearing. Well, I guess I don't know about you. You you look I, like you. Ironically been well. enough, Saran Neal and I are roughly the same size, height and weight. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I have a feeling the body composition might be a tad different. I don't know between the two of us. You might have had your Wheaties. I don't know, <laughs> but. Uh, so Ronnie and I are roughly the same size, but he is much more of a height, weight, speed guy. I don't think there is a scenario, much like I don't think there's a scenario where, well, I can't get to Teron Johnson, so let's go with Saran Neal. I also don't think that exists for Jaquan Johnson either. I don't think Jaquan Johnson and Saran Neal, because of their vastly different body types, are interchangeable in any roles at all. I think Jaquan Johnson really, truly is a... Let's see if he can be a core special teamer because I don't think he can necessarily hold up as a starting defensive player in this league. So if if Jaquan Johnson was going to be on the field during a regular defensive down, this is again in your opinion, and so that's fine. We can, you know, we can caveat this all we want. How do you think he would best serve the defense? I'd have him backing up Micah Hyde. Okay, so he's one of the two primary defensive safeties, but not one of the hybrid de- safeties. No, I wouldn't put him close to the line of scrimmage because I think he gets steamrolled. And I don't want him covering the slot because I don't think he has the feet for it. But having him in a Rome scenario, like a Jairus Bird sort of scenario, um, where he can use the things he's good at, instincts, right? Timing, anticipation, those things you can get away with when you're in the middle of the field. But down in the box where things happen a lot faster and you don't really get a chance to see things develop the way you want to from center field and you might have Gronk trying to steamroll you, yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable there. If Jaquan Johnson has to be on the field, if you held a gun in my head right now and tell me, sorry, he's got to be on the field for you on a normal defensive snap, I would say have him subbing for, for, for Micah Hyde. Okay, now, great. I say that Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer are almost interchangeable in this defense, so that's a reasonable answer as well. Okay, okay. Speaking of Gronk plowing you in the middle, Giggity. somebody who's been seeing a lot of run at tight end for us because of the injury to Tyler Croft is Dawson Knox. And I think that news is, oh, he doesn't look totally lost, you know, for being a guy who ran two routes and blocked at Ole Miss. He looks like maybe, you know, he's got a shorter learning curve than we all expected. So what have we heard about Dawson Knox and does it move the needle for what you expect of him or think of him at all? Exactly what you said. Dawson Knox doesn't look lost. I will just go ahead and chalk me up as surprised on this one. I did not see that coming. Now, to be fair, I will, I will add this caveat. Lots of spring players absolutely fall by the wayside when training camp comes. Des Lewis comes to mind recently. But having Dawson Knox not the bed right off the bat is good for me. Because I went on record, not on this podcast, but on a previous podcast, as saying we really probably shouldn't be expecting much from Dawson Knox 
for his first let's season. let's let's rehash that conversation for a lot of people who maybe haven't heard it previously why is the tight end position such a difficult transition from the college game to the pro game because that was our conversation my question to you back then was it when this was during the draft you know preview and all that kind of stuff that we were talking about on the bills backers pod but i had asked you is there a position that is the open and shut case the hardest to transition from the college game to the pro game and you said yes it was tight end yes so in addition to what you're about to tell us we have to keep in mind that with dawson knox we have a guy who came from an incredibly simplistic offense at Ole Miss, ran literally two to three routes maximum, and blocked. And that was the expectation for, for him to learn and perform. So give us keep that in mind as you tell us about what the transition is like from college to pro at the tight end position. Tight ends are just big wide receivers in college in most systems. Having a tight end, this is one of the reasons why Hawkinson and Noah Fant were so well-regarded is because coming out of Iowa, you knew they would be well-coached. And they would the learning curve for them wouldn't be as significant as it is for some. Because really, in the ad, with the advent of college spread offenses, tight ends are just really big slot receivers. And that's really it. And so they're tight end by positions, but really there's not a marked difference between them and a wide receiver. Which means this idea that you put them in a three-point stance in line and tell them to execute... A run block? There, I, I don't. What? What do you? I I don't know what that is. I, I I'm used to looking to the sidelines and seeing cards with Bob Dole's face on them, and they tell me what plays to run, and then I do that thing. I don't understand. This is just completely foreign to them. And so this idea, you go to the pros, you go, what? I have to be able to do both. Like I have to be able to to block, and I have to be able to run routes. Oh, you combine that with the fact that wide receivers are difficult to transition. Because the route trees are so much different, option routes and things like that. You add all this together, and tight end is just an incredibly difficult position to project. Then you add on to this, the fact that the Ole Miss offense is unbelievably elementary. And he's a converted quarterback. And it is, in my opinion, it was an absolute slam dunk that Dawson Knox would be a slow-developing player in the league. And he still could be, but wouldn't be awesome if he wasn't? Wouldn't it be amazing if he was one of those people where just he just beat all the odds and all the probabilities and just came in and was like TE1 and we're like Tyler Croft who? Who's Tyler Croft? Oh yeah, he was that guy we signed and he broke his foot. We never really heard from him again. He just came in as a backup because Tyler, you know, because Tyler Croft is just, you know, he's fine, whatever. But Dawson Knox is the man. That would be amazing. And it still could not happen. But hearing that he's not completely lost and has been getting tight end one reps and actually like, okay. Yeah, all right. He can show some athleticism. Now, to be fair, a lot of the things I just said aren't going to show up as deficiencies until padded practices anyway. So let's not get ahead of ourselves on Dawson Knox because he could very well still be someone who doesn't contribute in 2019 in a significant way. But the fact that he's not lost is awesome. Is the reservations that you have for Dawson Knox and really any tight end coming into the league, barring a handful of examples who are really polished products coming out. Okay. So there's a couple of them, right? Hawkinson maybe would be one that you would, you would feel optimistic about. 
Is the reservation around mental ability because of all the different things that tight ends are asked to do? Or is it around the physical demands because they're just not necessarily good at everything they're asked to do? For me, it's about you have to try and guess if they can do it because they've never had to. Even if they know how to do it, you come in and you're a tight end and they teach you, okay, now this is how you wanted to do it. Great. You do it. You start complying completely blind because you've never actually seen them do it. You've seen them practice it on a dummy during pre-draft workouts, but you have no clue if this person can do any of the inline stuff. Or if they come out and they were basically a six offensive lineman in college, now you have to teach them to do the other stuff, the route running and the catching. You've just never seen them do it before. So you're flying blind on at least half of the things you're going to ask them to do, which is just astronomical. And so even if the mental stuff is there, okay, I, I, I know. Coach, I understand. I know what you want me to do. You've just never seen them do it. There's tons of people who know how to do it and can't do it. I know how to run a route, but I'm old and chubby and <laughs> I can't do it. It doesn't matter if I know how. I, my body will not do the things it needs to do to have me get separation the way you see Stevie Johnson get separation. You just It's just not going to happen. So when my significant concern with tight ends coming out is that it's just a guessing game because you don't see them do any of the things they're going to be asked to do and this is the same same argument with quarterbacks. Right? Just because they can't do it, just because they haven't doesn't mean they can't. But just because they haven't doesn't mean they can either. So this all this there all this extrapolation right that you're doing, and you do it with a tight end position too. Okay, you have told me that you have some feelings about Mr. Patrick Demarco. He ain't getting no respect, man. I Okay, that's fair. So I'm listening to 53-man <laughs> roster projections. I try really hard not to listen to a lot of other Bills pods, okay? Not because I'm egocentric, but I I have a tendency to listen to our pod a lot. Like, I'll listen to each one of our episodes four to six times because I like watching game film on myself to try and figure out where I screwed up and where, for example, I say right a lot. When I get really excited, I'll go, hey, right, right, right. <laughs> I'll do that all the time because I get super jacked up. Like, I really need to not do those things. But occasionally I'll stumble across 53-man roster projections, and a lot of what is really popular right now is, eh, Patrick DeMarco might not make the roster. And the reason that's coming up is because of the running back thing that you and I have talked about. So everyone goes, well, you know, um, I really want to keep McCoy... Gore, Singletary, Yeldon. And then our response to that is, okay, who's playing special teams? Oh, well, uh, we'll get Perry to play special teams. And then, oh, well, that hold on, leaves that leaves us one extra spot. We'll just get rid of DeMarco. That's the natural response to that. We'll go with an H-back. I hear that one sometimes. I hear people talking about putting Tommy Sweeney in the backfield. Yeah, or Lee Smith, right? Who did it like, what, six snaps ever? <laughs> That's not something he's like traditionally done. But I really, really don't think that's going to happen. And I think if you if you want Patrick DeMarco to get cut, I will take your bets. 
Yeah. Well, let me ask you this specifically about what he does before we go into why he's you know not expendable. People are talking about getting rid of him and saying, okay, that's fine. We will have Sonoris Perry play special teams. And then if we need a fullback actually on an offensive play, then we will pull in Tommy Sweeney or Lee Smith or somebody. Actually, when you look at a fullback and what they are performing as far as lead blocking and going from the backfield into the hole and trying to clear out and all that kind of stuff, I don't. That doesn't strike me as the same kind of blocking that you ask a tight end to do. It's blocking in space. So you hear this with offensive linemen all the time. Some people can they move well in space and they don't move well in space, right? Because they're specifically asking you. How well does this offensive lineman translate to plays I want to run, like screen passes? Is this someone who I'm going to not want to run a screen to their side because they can't block well in space? When I say block well in space, can you hit a moving target? Are you athletic enough to run out there, properly gauge the speed and direction at which the defender is trying to get around you? Make sure you cut them off and block them. This is an athletic ability that you don't have to have. If you're an inline tight end blocking that much, because the person you're going to block is very likely across the line of scrimmage from you with fullbacks. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. Every time you block someone as a fullback, you're blocking in space. And when I say blocking in space, I don't mean you're running out in the backfield. You might be on a pitch play, but you got to get up in that hole and you got to make a really quick call as to who's coming downhill and you got to be able to block that person yeah. in space and you got to be able to make sure they don't swing by you. You And also goodness gracious, you got to make sure you don't get blown up in the hole. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that it was, seems like a, a mental part of the fullback game that I appreciate is that when the fullback enters the hole, sometimes there are two guys and they have to decide, I, you know, I think in a split second, they have to make multiple decisions, which is, is there a possibility that I can take out both of these guys if I hit one of them in a certain way and like close off the other one? Or is one of these guys going to be an easier person for the running back to take care of on their own? Or is one of these guys going to give us that couple extra yards before defender number two, whoever I don't block, takes the running back down in the most likely scenario? Or can my offensive lineman hold this for another second or two? Yeah. And that's... A fullback has... It's just a different skill set, man. If you think you could just take a tight end and just plug him back in there, I would vehemently disagree with that. Well, talking about too how hard we we think the full the the blocking responsibilities of a tight end can be for them. Now you're going to give them not only the inline blocking, the wide receiver type attributes. Now you're going to ask them to play in the backfield and be a lead blocker and effectively handle the responsibilities that they're given on those plays. You know, I I just don't, it doesn't seem to make the most sense. And even running backs, I think wouldn't say that that's like, that's what they would prefer to have a guy who's not a specialist, so to speak, performing those duties. I mean, whenever I think it was, I think even when Jerome Felton got cut 
on like a, a on a week to week basis or something. LaShawn McCoy poured one out for him in the locker room, and it may have been a different player. I don't know if it was him or Corey McIntyre or somebody, one of the other fullbacks we've had over the past several years. But when the guy got cut, you know, Shady was pouring one out in the locker room for him, and that's because you know whoever was coming in, I'm sure it was his buddy, but that person sets him up for success. You know, and to just throw a body back there because he's faster than a normal lineman, but can also do some blocking, I don't think is necessarily going to get you the same result. Yeah, we just finished telling you that tight ends have their heads swimming when they come in anyway, and they have to do so many different things. Now you're going to add, you're going to add fullback blocking yeah, to that gonna, now. You're going to tell Tommy Sweeney. Oh, also, you're going to do this now. Yeah, just so you know, uh, Dawson Knox. Hey, just now to be fair, Dawson Knox. A lot of his reps at Ole Miss were really far off the line of scrimmage. Like he was not, like he was basically in the slot. Like, he was really far off the right shoulder of the right tackle, like, way far back. Because that's just the way the stances and the alignments were in the old Miss offense. Which, let's be honest, if he was a foot backwards and about three feet to his left, he would have been a fullback at that point. But it's not the same. It's not the same at all. And to do and to say that is to diminish the skill set of a fullback and also to completely misevaluate what Brian Dable wants to do. 21 personnel, two running backs, one tight end. That's what 21 personnel means. 21 personnel is a Brian Dable thing. He wants to do that. I understand that he went empty and four wide and five a lot at the end of last year because we were going full air raid to try and make things easier on Allen and to help with his running abilities. But at his core, Brian Dable still wants to do 21 personnel. I understand that he may be changing that philosophy. But... I don't think you ever really change who you are on the inside. And I think he really does want his Devlin. Devlin being the, the Patriots fullback for all those years. Boo! Boo! Right, he wants Devlin and he wants that power running that you get with that. In addition, we just said that the Bills are trying to get their special teams better. You're not going to do that by cutting your special teams guy. I would be floored if Patrick DeMarco didn't make the roster. And if somebody wants to hit me up on social media and then wants to tell me why Patrick DeMarco is absolutely expendable, you know what? No, don't tell me that because I don't think he can win. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be convinced. I don't think I'll be swayed until I see his name on the list of roster cuts. All right, fair. Well, let's, let's take a quick break and then we will be back and finish up this conversation. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. One of two co-hosts, Nick Bat, along with... Bruce Nolan. And let's pick up where we left off. You said something that I always have a question about, and it is the number, pick a two-digit number, personnel. So is that always a situation where it's talking about the number of running backs and tight ends, or is it talking about receivers, or, or how does that work? The assumption is that the numbers that you didn't say are your receivers. So every single time you see it, if it's 12 personnel, it's one running back, two tight ends. If it's 21 personnel, it's two running backs, one tight end. If it's, you know, if you say 20 personnel, it's two running backs, zero tight ends. If you say zero personnel, it's an empty backfield with five wide receivers. Hypothetically. Yeah, or you just say empty. I'll give you a great example. So we started off last year with an offense that was built for Peterman. And it looked completely different. As 
we started to get more Josh Allen and we started to figure out what Josh Allen does. Dable made a significant adjustment to the offense. We were going empty a lot. It looked a little bit like the formations did. Looked like Chan Gailey's, but the route combinations were completely different, right? Fitzpatrick almost threw no vertical routes at all because the second the ball went past 20 yards, it started to flutter and die because he had to put his entire, he had to do a freaking crow hop just to get it yeah. 20 yards downfield. It was, like, because it was like you were playing duck hunting. You got him. Exactly. But with Josh Allen, it's, it looks similar, right? There's, there's all these empty sets and it, you know, it makes things a little bit easier because it spreads things out. It gives some spacing that you want. And the difference was you can run. And when you go, when you go that significant, you can go zone, but it forces a lot of people to go man. When you go empty, it forces people to go man. It forces them to kind of show you what they're going to give you on a defensive front level. And then, then you got to chase Josh Allen around for the next 60 minutes. And you got to have him okie doke Kiko Alonso a couple times and make you look a little, a little silly. But that doesn't change the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, Brian Dable still probably in his heart of hearts wants to be a lot more 21 personnel. He wants to do that. Now, we're going to find out later how much of that spread stuff was necessity and how much of it was preference. Because I'm leaning on the side of maybe a little bit of it was necessity and it was because the line wasn't good and we weren't getting the run game that we wanted. And if we get better line... And we draft a running back. Maybe we can do more 21 stuff the way he initially wanted to. We'll find out this year if I'm completely wrong. That's 100% on the table. And maybe we come out and we go five wide. Or we go 11 personnel the entire time. And so that's a possibility. I think that that's where people are going when they say we think we're just going to 100% keep six wide receivers. I think the reason they think that is because of how often we went four and five wides. If you're never going to go four and five wides, then why carry six receivers? You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that the the way the tight end room looks right now, we're going to have a lot of tight ends on this roster. I mean, Tyler Croft's injury, I guess, muddles all that. I mean, it just and, and who knows? We could have more guys who are hurt between now and cutdown day. But that really shakes up what you want to do and how, who you want to carry. As far as it, you can't let these guys go, they're going to count against your roster. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, you, you got to be creative. And yeah, I mean, six wide receivers based on the kind of personnel you want to run, and I think the tight end room factors into that. So it does. Okay. So last player that I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know that we got a whole lot of news about it with minicamp, but it's somebody that you talked about on Twitter a little bit. And also I have a, an interesting comment that was made about him by Josh Allen and that's Cole Beasley. So Cole Beasley had his core muscle injury, his hernia of some kind or groin injury, whatever you want to call it. And has not really been, uh, a part of the offense in the way that, you know, I think we all imagine he will be during practices because of the injury. That being said, you think that's just the, the recency bias of not seeing him is making it so we're not appreciating everything that he's going to do for us. Is that, is that your opinion? Cole Beasley is more important as a more important addition to this offense than John Brown. I, I don't, I, I don't think that's a crazy hot take, but it might be. 
John Brown does something really well that someone else on our roster already did well. I'm not saying that Robert Foster is John Brown or John Brown is Robert Foster. I'm saying you're, you're bringing them in to be vertical threats and having two of them on the field at the same time is going to be awesome, right? It's going to be fantastic for opening things up on the inside. Cole Beasley gives you something you did not have previously. Don't even come in here with your Isaiah McKenzie take. Don't do it. Do not come into my mentions and tell me that we already had Isaiah McKenzie. We didn't need Cole Beasley. No. Go away. No. <laughs> Stop. Get help. Stop it. Get some help. That is not true. Cole Beasley is an established slot receiver who was targeted. I think I just put something on Twitter not too long ago that Dallas targeted their slot receivers almost less than any team in the entire league. Cole Beasley was unbelievably underutilized. And he's not the first Dallas wide receiver to come out not feeling particularly good about Scott Linehan. I understand they changed offensive coordinators to Kellen Moore. I get it. But Cole Beasley has an opportunity to be a really good player. My question is not whether or not Cole Beasley can operate well in Brian Dable's offense. He absolutely can. My question is, can he operate well with Josh Allen? Because the types of throws that Cole Beasley would be getting are not historically the types of throws Josh Allen's good at. Well, okay, that's fair. Don't you think it's a little curious that if Cole Beasley shared that concern, he had the opportunity to go to New England where he's going to receive balls from a totally different kind of quarterback and be, you know, uh, positioned to have the productivity that comes along with that? Sure. We also don't know what New England was offering him. He's going to come up here and he's going to get in front of the podium and he's going to say, man, you know, Josh Allen. He's not going to get up there and go, I'll level with you. I got the offer from my agent and I went, whoa, that's a, that's a, what's a lot more money than everyone else is offering me. And that's how I picked Buffalo. Yeah. He's not going to say that. It's right. bad PR. And if he did say that, Derek Boyko would be in his ear as he walked off the podium going, what are you doing? And so, absolutely, he's going to say, I mean, Josh Allen's great. And you know, why? I'll just look at the film. He's going to say that. I get that. But we've never seen Josh Allen play really well at those precision option routes and the pivot routes and those kind of things. Those are the kind of things that he has not historically done well. Now, to be fair, historically for Josh Allen is 12 games. That doesn't mean he can't do it. Just because we haven't seen him do it, this is earlier in the conversation, just because we haven't seen him do it yet doesn't mean he can't do it. It just means he hasn't. But now... If we don't see him do it, it won't because he won't be because he didn't have a good slot receiver. He has a good slot receiver. Cole Beasley is a good slot receiver. Okay, so I, okay, I, I have an assumption that I want you to fix my perspective if I'm wrong. My eyes and my memory tell me that at the end of last season, the player who came on in the offense was. Well, one would be Robert Foster, but a player who came on the team and moved the needle as far as offensive production was Isaiah McKenzie, that he came on and was a little bit of a spark that that brought the offense to life. Now, he, although not the same player as Cole Beasley and not the same level of slot receiver, he did run those kinds of routes. He was running drag routes and shallow crosses and stuff like that, and he and Josh Allen seemed to quickly create some chemistry. 
why does what Josh Allen did with Isaiah McKenzie at the end of last year not calm some of our concerns about his short-range accuracy? Because he didn't do it as well as we think he did. Josh Allen, if you look at some of the advanced metrics of Josh Allen throwing to his left and things like that, Josh Allen in the short range, and then you watch some of the tape and you go, some of these really short routes, he just didn't get his feet really well underneath him. Tim Graham of The Athletic did an awesome Q&A with Josh Allen that just dropped today. And one of the things they talked about was your your completion percentage is eight and a half points higher on play action. Why is that? Well, Josh Allen's feet are were an issue coming out of Wyoming. And they've historically been an issue for him. Hopefully he gets it cleaned up. They were much better at the end of last year than they were at the beginning of last year. But one of the reasons that works is because play action comes with it. A kind of a built-in five-step drop. And that allows you to get your feet up and under you. Take long strides. Get your base set. Versus these short little bubble screens where you catch and throw. Sometimes your hips aren't even pointed correctly. And it's just all arm and you airmail the thing and you go, what happened? Well, he didn't really set at all. He just grabbed it and threw it, which is all arm. And that's where that, in, that inherent accuracy comes in. How accurate are you when your feet are garbage is the inherent accuracy, right? Do you have to be mechanically precise in order to be accurate? The answer for Josh Allen is, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because when he's not mechanically precise and his hips are all jacked up, and is not getting where he wants to get from a platform standpoint, the ball sails on it. And some of that some of that stuff is stuff that Cole Beasley would do well at. I'm not saying slot receivers are good for bubble screens, right? What I'm saying is the ability to catch a shotgun snap, turn your body, not have the drop necessary to help your hips get aligned. You don't have that to help you anymore because you're not going to take a shotgun snap and then drop five yards. That's not going to happen. You're, you're going to take your shotgun snap and you're going to pivot and try and get your feet right right then. Well, that's a different, that's a harder thing to get right because you don't have the natural drop to help you get it straight. And then with these quicker developing routes, you need to get the trigger off quicker. And when you need to get the trigger off quicker, that demands shorter drops. So it's like, it's almost like the the depth of your target is directly correlative to the depth of your drop. So very rarely are you going to have a seven-step drop, right, and then a short pivot route. Why? Because by the time you got to your short, your, your the top of your seven-step drop, the pivot route's already come and gone then. It's, it's done. You have to have the depth of your drop coincide with the depth of the route. And for Cole Beasley, that he's going to win earlier in the down, which means Josh Allen's got to get his feet right earlier in the down. And he hasn't yet thus far shown the propensity to be able to do that consistently, which makes me worry that maybe Cole Beasley will be an underutilized part of this offense because he, not necessarily because he won't be able to be good in the offense because he won't jive with what Josh Allen does well. Josh Allen thus far, we found something Josh Allen does good. Drop seven steps, hang on the ball for a billion years, Bomb it deep or run it. Just fully air. We, we, we know he can play 
in that space. We've seen him do it. He was the number one fantasy quarterback for like a five-week stretch because everything was 40-yard touchdown or running for 30 yards, which for fantasy football purposes is amazing. But he has to be able to play in that underneath stuff. And the Isaiah McKenzie thing, I think, looks better to us in retrospect because of how incredibly poorly the offense was playing in general. I also think that upon hearing you describe that, that Isaiah McKenzie received passes, he caught passes later in plays. So the play was moving along and Josh had gone through a couple of reads or the play was extended and then he found Isaiah McKenzie. It wasn't what you're talking about with Cole Beasley with a quick timing situation. Right. We're we're misremembering Isaiah McKenzie as being the same type of receiver as Cole Beasley, and he's not. Okay. In fact, he's so much so that Brian Gable didn't really ask Josh Allen to do those things. Yeah. Because we didn't have anybody who could do it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that was so you brought up Tim Graham's question and answer with the athletic with with Josh Allen, which was is truly a great piece. You and I were texting about it earlier today, actually. One of the things that Josh Allen said is that well, Tim Graham asked Josh Allen, the biggest criticism of your throwing abilities is your short range accuracy. How do you mesh that sentiment with the fact that Cole Beasley adds a, a short range weapon you'll need to feed? And then Allen's response is, that comes down to more communication, ball placement, reading each other's leverage, and making good decisions. Now, those four things, I have a feeling, deserve a lot more than just to be listed in a, sim- a single sentence. <laughs> like, Yeah. But so, basically what he said was, well, it's just everything. Yeah, every well, you know, it'll get <laughs> better. It'll get better if everything gets better, right? So, yeah, th- there's a laundry list of issues that exist with our short-range accuracy, including these four major things. One of them I'm curious about what exactly it means, which is reading each other's leverage. What what does that what is Josh Allen talking about that he's seeing that he needs to make a decision based off of that information? So, You've heard the phrase option routes before, where if you're running a route and you're running it and you realize during the route that it's a zone, you're supposed to do one route. And if you're running it and it's man, it's a different route. That's not the only type of discretion that a wide receiver has. That's not the only decision that you have to make when you're running a route. One of the other things that you as a quarterback have to make when you're watching a receiver run a route is, is this cornerback in trail technique? Are they bracketing? What's the scenario there? So I'll give you a great example. Cole Beasley actually made this comment that he was really easy to defend in Dallas because all you had to do was bracket him because he wasn't going to run a route more than five yards down the field, right? Bracketing him being, let's put a guy over top of him who's responsible to make sure he doesn't go right. And let's put a guy to his left to make sure he doesn't go left. In incredibly, incredibly simplistic terms. But... If Cole Beasley is running a route and somebody is running with him and has a specific type of leverage on him, maybe he's trailing behind or he's shading to the left or he's shading to the right, Cole Beasley might go, you know, I'm not going to be able to get separation if I break this in, so I'm going to break this out. Josh Allen has to look at Cole Beasley and go, you know... I think Cole Beasley's going to break this out. <laughs> they have to read the same things. Yeah. Because Josh Allen has to look at this and go, you know, I know the route 
would prefer if Cole Beasley broke this inside. But based on the leverage of that defender, I don't think he's going to break it inside. Because I wouldn't break it inside if I was running around. If I was Josh McCown and I was a slot receiver for five seconds, <laughs> I would break this outside. So Cole Beasley is going to break this outside. So I'm going to throw it outside. That's an example of the communication and the leverage thing, right? And that's where you get these quarterbacks who they always talk about being on the same page with their slot receiver and think that stuff is a lot more common in the slot than it is on the outside. And because in the slot, it's a lot more, hey, how can I get separation right now? How can I get separation for two seconds right now? And that that story could change during your route. You might start the route and go, hey, you know, I'm going to break this inside. I'm going to get separation. And here you are four steps in going, I don't think this is going to work. I think I should break it out. And you have to think the same thing they do. And the way that you do that is by reading leverage. Two questions about that. One, I think that these option routes, whenever you see a quarterback throw the ball to a spot and the wide receiver is running down the field and the ball just lands and the court and the, like the, the, the wide receiver wasn't even looking for it, that's an option route where they saw two different things, right? Yeah. Okay. Number two, Sometimes I, you hear quarterbacks talk about, well, you hear chemistry with wide receivers and, and quarterbacks being very important and that, you know, it takes time and all that kind of stuff. Is understanding the decision making a wide receiver is going to make in the midst of that route? Because I know you, Bruce. I know that even though this guy is playing you a particular way, you still think you're just going to outrun him. And so you're you're not going to break it off, even though if another wide receiver was in the identical situation, they would take advantage of an option. I know you because of our chemistry, and you're not going to do it. You're going to go deep, right? I'll take one of the other reasons why wide receivers transitioning from college to NFL is hard for 400, Alex. <laughs> that is, you just hit the nail on the head. That stuff is not in college. In college, it's, this is the route you're running. This is the route you're running. That's the route you run. Because that's the way the play was drawn up on the board. And so you're going to do this thing. Because because you have such superior athletes and the talent discrepancy is so significant, you can just rely on scheme to scheme somebody open. This idea that I have to make decisions while running routes, this is not a thing that happens in college. And so this is one of the reasons why transitions to the NFL are difficult. And that's where this whole chemistry thing comes in. I know you, Mr. Cole Beasley. I know that if you feel this guy off your left shoulder, you're going to break it right. I know that. Yeah. But I think the thing that's interesting is that a different receiver might feel, might make a different decision off of the same, off of the same catalyst. Absolutely. Because that receiver has a different belief in what their skill sets are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And the white, the, the quarterback not only needs to know what the play is telling everybody to do, but how the players are going to play the game. The back shoulder throw is entirely a leverage throw. Because if, the, if, if someone doesn't give you their back, if, a, if a, if, if a man coverage corner doesn't give you their back, you're not throwing that ball because it's getting picked off and going the other way. The only reason you threw it is because the defender showed you their back. Because if they're facing you, you're not going to throw that pass, right? That's just not how this works. You know, if you have an off uh, coverage who is really off or super off man or it's a zone there, you're not going to throw that ball because the leverage of the defender is wrong. The back shoulder throw, the reason why it's so difficult to defend is because if properly placed, 
there's really not much you can do about it. It's a leverage throw. Aaron Rodgers is the best in the business at this throw. And it's a, it's entirely a leverage throw. That's an example of a throw that is made based on leverage. All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up and leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, everybody. We very much appreciate having you all with us. Uh, if you don't follow us already on social media, I am on Twitter at NickBat, N-I-C-K-B-A-T. I am on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. And you will get a lot of fun information and cool polls and football takes and everything like that all week long if you are following us there on Twitter. Now, I'm going to ask a favor as well, which is to let us know what you think of the pod. You can do that a handful of ways. You can uh, find the article of the post on buffalorumblings.com, which should be up sometime on the afternoon. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter and just let us know directly what you think. You can leave us a comment on Reddit at the Buffalo Bills subreddit, r slash Buffalo Bills, and let us know what you think there. Or you could even leave us a review on your favorite podcast app like iTunes, and we love those five-star reviews with some nice words. They just fill our heart with butterflies. Now, I understand this is also just the second date with us, and not all of you are going to give it up on the second date, and that's fine. You know, you got some self-respect. I appreciate that. You're not giving every podcast a five-star review just because you liked one episode, and I understand where you're coming from, and I I respect you as a person. So we will be back next week, and we're going to give it another go to try so, to get to try to get the five star review third date that's right on the third date maybe and some of you i know are going to hold out all the way to the fifth date and that's fine you know what it, it takes all kinds everybody it takes all kinds so we will see you next week and the week after and the week after week after we're going to earn that five star review from you but if there's something you really liked or you didn't like please hit us up and let us know what you think we love doing the podcast we're excited to be on buffalo rumblings with you and as always until next time I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com Flagship. This is a paid advertisement.